Um, I don't know if you have ever really thought about like my job and what I do. Um, I know uh, there are a lot of ways you could describe my job. Uh, number one, I'm a professional Christian. So, you know, I get paid uh, to do this. Uh, another uh, thing, though, that you maybe haven't thought about is that I am a professional explainer. I have to figure out how to explain things to people in a way that is going to make sense of the material and also in a way that is going to uh, touch their lives and, and hopefully bring about some sort of change. Now, as a professional explainer, I found myself in these kinds of situations, so maybe you have too. Have you ever been part of a conversation where you think you are explaining something clearly, but someone hears the exact opposite of what you're trying to say? It can be a really frustrating experience when this happens. And I have, for example, had on multiple occasions people approach me after a sermon and thank me for saying something that I know I didn't say. Uh, and only once have I had to correct someone. Uh, usually it's something good, you know, and it's like, okay, well, I can go along with that, even though I didn't say it. Um, I remember when I was a young uh, youth minister, I needed to step into a situation that was happening with two uh, girls in the youth group I was working with. And one girl was a senior, <coughs> excuse me, and the other was a freshman. And the problem was that the freshman girl was only hanging out with the senior girl and the senior girl was going to be leaving for college. So I decided I need to have a conversation with uh, the senior girl and to tell her that she really needed to, to encourage this young freshman girl to go and make other friends in the youth group so that when the senior left, the freshman would have other connections and not just fall away. Well, about two days later, I got a really angry phone call from one of the parents. And I realized that something was wrong from the angry phone call. And so I set up a meeting with uh, both the girls and with the parents, and uh, I asked them to come in. So they all came in and I explained my point of view again, that this is what I was asking. And I asked the senior what she had heard, because this was sort of the root of things. And she said, you told me I can't hang out with the freshman anymore because I'm not good for her. I said, no, <laughs> that's, that's not what I meant. If you heard me say that, I, I'm sorry, but that's not what I meant. And she repeated it to me again, because she wasn't quite ready to let go of the fact that she had heard me say this. And though I was uh, a bit perplexed about how we got to that point, I, I, I apologized, and I promised to communicate clearly in the future. Now. What is the moral of this story? Number one, sometimes no matter how hard you prepare something or how uh, much time or effort you, putting in, you put into making something you think comprehensible for someone else, it may not work. Because the biggest point, number two, is that you have no control over what someone else hears. No matter what you say, no matter how you say it, no matter, you could draw diagrams and have pictures and all sorts of things, but I cannot control how you hear what I say. And the remarkable thing about that is um, 
If I say something in the, let's say, in the first third, so in the first half hour of my sermon, if I say something in the first third of my sermon that sits wrong with you, I might have lost you for the entire time. And it might have been something that I didn't mean to say at all, but you heard it in a certain way. So what do we learn? Sometimes it takes more than one pass to communicate a thought well, especially if the thoughts you are communicating are personal, if it has to do with someone's life or anything else. And if one is going to have these conversations, one must work hard to communicate clearly as best as possible, sometimes circling back multiple times. One must also be prepared to have the person that one is communicating to take something personally as they go through whatever it is. So in other words, when you have these kinds of conversations that deal with very personal things, you run a risk every time of hurting someone's feelings or of them misunderstanding you. And you know, the stakes are only raised if I wanna talk to someone about their relationship with God. It's difficult to say to someone, to anyone, um, this is what God wants you to hear or this is how I think your life might benefit from changing something in this way or that. Now, on the one hand, I very much want people to uh, receive this information and to take it personally. Because if we're talking about their relationship with God, then I need them to apply it in a personal way that I can't do for them. You know what I'm saying? On the other hand, personal feelings can get in the way of the person hearing what it is that I really want to say to them because maybe I said it in a way that touched on something that I don't know is there. You know what I mean? Um, maybe they don't think they need to change anything. Maybe they don't like me and they think I'm picking on them. Uh, Maybe uh, they feel that I am judging them or singling them out, or maybe they simply uh, don't want to do whatever it is that I'm suggesting. And, and that's a lot of maybes for one conversation, right? <clears throat> Our relationship with God is a deeply personal matter. Our feelings are all wound up in how we see ourselves, how we understand God, and how we understand his working in our lives. It's a sensitive subject, but there is another issue at play. Sometimes not only is the subject sensitive, but we are sensitive as well. Because when it comes to your relationship with God, we have a tendency, all of us do, to make our spiritual relationship with God about ourselves. And we wrestle with God made me who I am, but God is asking me to change. And what does that mean? And how, it, if I'm applying the love of God to my life and I know he forgives me for all of these things, then why do some of these other things matter? I mean, we can make our relationship with God about us in a myriad of ways. That's the more complicated way. But we can make worship, for example, about how we feel or what songs were sung or how tired we are in the morning rather than about who God is. 
The things that we have to do are so important in our everyday life that we don't have time to stop and recognize God on a very busy day where we did a lot of really important things. We can ignore God for long periods of time and then run back to him when we need something or when something is really troubling us. Are your toes feeling a little crunched right now? Church, it is all too easy to make things about us, our needs, our wants, our desires, our feelings, than it is to make our spiritual life about God and what God is doing in us or around us or in the world. And sometimes the hardest connection point that we may have is tying ourselves into something that God is doing that doesn't involve us, that didn't come to you that came to someone else or somewhere else. And in my mind, the the worst manifestation of this is when our me-centric view gets in the way of us seeing what God is doing around us and then keeps us from joining him. And it happens more often than it should. Now, Paul is having just such a conversation with the church in Rome And we're going to be in chapter 11 today, so if you want to open your Bibles there, I invite you to do so. And this is the third chapter in a long period of this conversation where he is explaining the same thing in different ways, multiple times. Because he's having to cut through some very personal things, and he's anticipating that the community is going to take these things personally. Now, he wants them to take it personally because some of their thinking and behavior needs to change. But he also doesn't want them to take it so personally that they miss out on what God is doing. And that's the challenge, right? It's the challenge that we all face in our spiritual life. Now, ironically, Paul is having this argument in his head. Because if you remember, this is a letter written to a church that he's never met, and he doesn't quite know what the specifics. But in this letter, we see the culmination of what you see in a lot of the other letters. He talks about a lot of the same issue, but goes into it in much greater depth. But he anticipated that people would get hung up on specific things, and that's why he goes over it again and again and again from every different angle because you don't know, he doesn't know which angle's going to hit and all of a sudden makes sense to them. So as we look over this material this morning, if I repeat myself, I'm just following in the steps of Paul. So number one. Not everything is about you, and stop trying to say or stop acting like that's how it should be. Because it's not. It's not all about you. From Romans chapter 11, verses 1 through 6. And how many times have we heard Paul say this in Romans? I asked then, did, did God reject his people? By no means. How many times has he said that? At least four or five. I asked them, did God reject his people? By no means. I am an Israelite myself, a descendant of Abraham from the tribe of Benjamin. God did not reject his people whom he foreknew. Don't you know what scripture says in the passage about Elijah? 
how we appeal to God against Israel. Lord, they have killed your prophets and torn down your altars. I am the only one left, and they are trying to kill me. And what was God's answer to him? I have reserved for myself 7,000 who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So too, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace, and if by grace, then it cannot be based on works. If it were, grace would no longer be grace. Okay, so if you remember, here are the different groups of people who are involved in this conversation. You have Jewish Christians, so they grew up, they were Jewish, they grew up within the Jewish uh, system of beliefs, and they have come to believe in Jesus. You have Gentile Christians who were probably uh, in Rome coming from a pagan environment, so they worshipped all these other gods, and they have come to believe in Jesus. And then in this discussion, you have the Jews who have not, have chosen not to believe in Jesus. Okay, so there's that tension too that that these Jewish Christians know and feel. What about everyone else? And if we're getting away with all of if we're if we're doing away with all of our Jewishness, then what about them too? Like it just gets more and more. You see, like the levels of of personal <laughs> that we're dealing with here, and that Paul is talking about. So we have such a poignant example in the Roman Church about how we can battle with ourselves about some of these things and questions. Paul has made the point over and over again that God has not rejected Israel. What's happening is God is including more people in his plan to save the world, but he knows that this will continue to be a sticking point. Not because the Jewish Christians were bad people, understand, but because they're people. And they are going to take some of these things very, very personally. And it's a big shift. Moving, moving from a system that is centered around the Jewish people to a system that now includes anyone who has faith in Jesus. Think about the difference between those two things. Where for as long as they can remember back to Abraham that, that there was a people called by God to be his. He would be their God. They would be his people. And now God is saying anyone who believes in Jesus can come and be saved. So Paul wants them to know God has not rejected you. He is not acting against you. He is not punishing you or excluding you. That's not what this is about. So stop trying to make it about that. About you. And how you feel about what God is doing. And Paul uses an excellent example to explain this. He uses the example of Elijah. Now, if you know the story of Elijah, uh, the passage that Paul quotes comes right after Elijah had one of the most triumphant moments where he had gone to the mountaintop and, and God had proved himself and accepted his sacrifice, and he had defeated the prophets of Baal. But after that happened, it made Queen Jezebel mad, because now all of her prophets were dead, most of them, I should say, and God had proven himself, and, and she didn't like that, so she started to threaten Elijah. And he got a little into his feelings about that. That he was being threatened after he had stood up for God. And now here he is. He runs out into the wilderness. 
and sits in a cave and pouts. He does. He just sits there and whines about his entire situation. I'm the only one left. I stood up for you. And now here I am in a cave. And your own people have torn down your altars and are, wish and are worshiping other idols. And it's just me. Hmm. And what does God tell him? Look, man. You're not alone. You're not alone. There are, he says, 7,000 who have been set aside, meaning that have chosen not to worship Baal. You are not the last prophet, my dude. You are just one of many. Elijah was so in his feelings about all of this that he missed 7,000. members of the, the family of God, 7,000. So here we see something insightful. Sometimes when God is not working directly in us, we can turn inward, even coming off of something that God has done, which was amazing. And we can feel sorry for ourselves. We can isolate ourselves. We can cry out to God wondering why God isn't doing more for us. Because that's what Elijah was struggling with, right? Why aren't you doing more for me? We can even look at other places of growth and be angry about it. That God isn't doing those things through us. And when we do this, again, we risk missing out on being a part of what God is doing because we're sitting in a cave crying about how things are. In Rome, this was just such the case. Paul didn't want the Jewish Christians to make this personal because it wasn't. Things have changed. You are no longer saved by works. You are saved by grace. And some of you who are from the Jewish background, you are now, you've been called out just like the 7,000 that were there when Elijah was around. So come and be involved in what God is doing. Don't make this personal about you because there is much more going on. Number two, God is not going to make anyone believe in him or follow him. He won't, he won't do that from verses 7 through 10. What then? What the people of Israel sought so earnestly they did not obtain. The elect among them did, but the others were hardened. As it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that could not see and ears that could not hear to this very day. And David says, may their table become a snare, excuse me, a snare and a trap, a stumbling block, and a retribution for them. May their eyes be darkened so they cannot see and their backs be bent forever. We love passages like this, don't we? We've already talked about them in another, in another couple of different kinds of contexts. But these passages are challenging to us because of what they seem to say about what God is doing. And in particular, we don't like these ideas of God 
uh, blinding people's eyes or hardening of hearts or making it so they can't see or hear. And so he, he starts out in this, you know, this tough point. Some of Israel has not received what they were looking for. Why did this happen? And again, he digs into this idea, this concept of God hardening hearts, which, again, is challenging if we don't dig into it. And I have been asked some version of this question, I don't know how many times in my life. If God is God, then why doesn't he make it more obvious that he's God? Or why doesn't he show himself in such a way so that everyone will believe in him and follow him and we wouldn't have to go through all of this Christian, non-Christian thing? You ever, anyone ever have to, or maybe you've asked that question yourself. I hope you have. It's a good question. There are times when we want God to do more to prove to us that he is there. As if God needs to prove himself to me. God wants us to choose him. But he will not make the choice for us. He has made himself known, but some do not see or hear. And at this point, Paul is talking about the difference between the Jewish Christians and the Jews who chose not to believe in Jesus. So the Jewish Christians are now living in the fulfillment of the life that God wants for them, but their Jewish brothers and sisters are not. They did not receive what they were looking for. So why do some not see or hear or understand? And, and what does it mean that God hardened them? Well, we have to make a note of this, all right? Um, God does not harden hearts that have not already been hardened against him. I want you to understand that. I know it looks like it says as if God went to like a free-thinking person that wanted to believe in him and said, no, you can't. God has not done that, and that's not what these passages mean. The verses that Paul chose demonstrate to us that when God says a heart is hardened or someone cannot see or hear, that that heart was already hardened against God. They were not seeing or hearing. So what did God do? Or what did God not do? He didn't try to punch through that hardness to make them believe. Instead, he gives them over to that. So. The first part of the passage uh, that Paul quotes here um, is a combination of Deuteronomy chapter 29, verse 4, and Isaiah 29, 10. And in the Deuteronomy passage, Moses calls the people together so that God could renew his covenant. And he warned them that they needed to follow the law or they would lose his favor and protection. And if you have to remember, they've already had some issues with this on their way out to Mount Sinai. So they have to follow God. And, and he said to them, that they have seen many things, how God had delivered him, but they had not yet understood, even though they had seen so many things, you know, a pillar of fire and manna and all this other stuff, even though they had seen all these things, their deliverance from Egypt, they still didn't understand 
that God had been with them in doing these things all along the way. And the question that you might have is, how did they not understand that? Because they're people. And they got tired of manna. Who wants to eat the same thing every day? They, they got... They got tired of, they were, they were, they wanted different food. They were tired of walking in the wilderness. They just want to get there already. Are we there yet? Are we there yet? Are we there yet? The Isaiah 29 passage spells it out even more, even better. So we're going to read from Isaiah chapter 29, verses 10 and 13. The Lord has brought you over a deep sleep. He has sealed your eyes, the prophets. He has covered your heads, the seers. The Lord said, and listen to this, these people come near to me with their mouth and honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Their worship of me is based on merely human rules they have been taught. So who are those whose hearts are hardened, are hardened whose eyes don't see, who ear, whose ears don't hear? They are the ones who come to God and worship him, but have no connection to him. The worship that they, that they do is just an act. It's just something they do. They follow the rules, but there is no relationship with God. And therefore, their eyes are closed. Their ears are closed. They cannot see. They cannot hear. They are not listening to what God is doing. Their worship of him is based on, it says, human rules. It's based on what they want and how they want the system to work instead of God. In the same way, David in Psalm 69, verses 22 through 23, spoke of their feasts becoming snares and traps. Think about that. And you see this in other passages too, where this sort of Coming to God to do things but not connecting with God speaks against them more. So, so they're saying, you know, I come to worship you. I offer you sacrifices. I'm, I'm doing the feasts. I'm doing all those things. But none of those things matter. Because God's not there. It's about them and what they want. So the hardening that God is talking about here is the letting go of those who already have not seen or heard. It is allowing them to continue in the refusal of who he is. And there's a reason why when God, in the one instance that we know where he really pushed for someone to believe, appeared to Paul and scales fell from his eyes, or scales were on his eyes and then fell, right? Because he could not see. And what did God want him to learn? Dude, you can't see what's going on around you. I don't know if he said dude. <laughs> Might not have. There's a reason why Jesus says over and over again to people, some who will believe in him and some who don't. He who has ears, let them hear. Because he knows that he has no control, nor does he necessarily want control over what you think and believe. He wants you to hear and believe, but God will not make that choice for you. So God will let us be hardened if we want to be hardened against him. 
He will allow us to be blind and deaf if we want to be blind and deaf, because that is our choice. And God will not make us choose him. And the same is true for us now. God does show himself to everyone, but he will not make anyone choose him. And when we get caught up in what's going on in our life or in our personal things or what we want God to do or how we want him to work or manifest himself, sometimes we can find ourselves ignoring everything else he's doing while we're looking for that one thing for me. We can't make it, we can't make it about us. So thirdly, Stop thinking that all of this is about one thing or another. Or, I'm sorry, one thing or the other. It's not about what you get versus what someone else gets. It's not about how God is working in one community that's different than another community. This, all of this is about how God is drawing everything together. He's not trying to separate you. He is trying to draw all things together. We're going to look at the, we're going to go through verse 24, and I'm going to break it up a little bit as we go. So let's look first at 11 and 12. Again, I ask, did they stumble so as to fall beyond recovery? Meaning, did the people who have not chosen God or not chosen Jesus, are they lost now? Not at all. Rather, because of their transgression, salvation has come to the Gentiles to make Israel envious. That's interesting, isn't it? But if their transgression means riches for the world and their loss means riches for the Gentiles, how much greater riches will their full inclusion bring? All right. So, first of all, there's something really important that he says here. He asks the question, because he's just been talking about these people whose hearts are hardened and can't see or hear, right? Are they beyond God? This is important. Are they beyond God? No, they are not. So when we read that God hardened their hearts or made them blind or can't hear, what is God, what is Paul saying right here in this part? They can choose to be unhardened. They can choose to see and to hear. But because they chose to be hardened and not to see or to hear, God sends Jesus and he opens up his plan of salvation to who? To everybody, even Gentiles. That's everybody. It's the whole world. And because of that, salvation now has come to the whole world through Jesus and all are saved by grace. And maybe when those that rejected Jesus see how the Gentiles are being saved, they will grow jealous and want to be a part of what God is doing. You know what's so funny about that to me? We've been talking about how we take things personally and make it about us. So what does God do? He tries to make it personal so that you see what he's doing in the world, and what do you get? Jealous. And you decide, well, I want to be a part of that too. And maybe you stand outside for a while, and you look, and it's like no one's inviting me in. Or I don't know that I could do that. Or that makes me uncomfortable. But the invitation is always there. 
And more importantly, there is always a chance to come back. God does not, church, harden you so that you can never find him. No one is beyond recovery. And that's the good news of the gospel, right? That no one is beyond recovery. Verse 13, I am talking to you Gentiles inasmuch as I am the apostle to the Gentiles. I take pride in my ministry in the hope that I may somehow arouse my own people to envy and save some of them. For if their rejection brought reconciliation to the world, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? If the part of the dough offered as first fruits is holy, then the whole batch is holy. If the root is holy, so are the branches. So he now shifts the conversation to the Gentiles because he's been talking to the Jewish Christians for a while. And what does he want them to know? Look, you didn't get here on your own. You did not invent Christianity. You're not better off than the Jews. For better or for worse, God has included you because of them. Because what God is doing in Jesus, he is building on the shoulders of his chosen people. And the dough in this case is the Jewish believers. And the whole batch is all who come to believe. And he says, if, if the first batch is holy, then what is the rest of it? Holy as well. And, and the root where you come from started with the Jewish believers, and you are a branch of that tree. So in verse 17, if some of the branches have been broken off, which would be those who choose not to believe in Jesus, and you, though a wild olive shoot, those are the Gentiles, have been grafted in among the others and now share in the nourishing sap from the olive root, do not consider yourself to be superior to those other branches. If you do, consider this. You do not support the root, but the root supports you. You will say then, branches were broken off so that I could be grafted in. Granted, but they were broken off because of unbelief, and you stand by faith. Do not be arrogant, but tremble. For if God did not spare the natural branches, he will not spare you either. He's saying, how do you want to look at this? Because you have some choices in terms of how you view what God is doing. And this illustration is an important one to help us understand. So you have the root, which is the people of God, which God established himself. And the Gentile believers are described as a wild olive shoot that has been grafted into this cultivated olive tree, some of whose branches had been broken off. Now, why did the branches break off? Because they chose to. It's their unbelief. That's why they're broken off. But let me tell you something. They were not broken off to make room for you. That's not how this works. Yes, they are gone because of their own uh, unbelief, but you have been put into this new growth. You were, you were wild away from the root, and you have been grafted in to these places. So Paul warned his Gentile readers not to view themselves as somehow superior to the former branches or even to those who broke off from their unbelief. They do not support the root. The root supports them. And finally, consider therefore the kindness and sternness of God. 
sternness to those who fell, but kindness to you, provided that you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you also will be cut off. And if they do not persist in unbelief, they will be grafted in. For God is able to graft them in again. After all, if you were cut out of an olive tree that is wild by nature, and contrary to nature, were grafted into a cultivated olive tree, because that's the reverse of how they would have done it at the time, how much more readily will these, the natural branches, be grafted into their own olive tree? Here's the point he's trying to make here, just kind of simply. One, God is kind and stern. So he's good to you, but he's also watching how you act and interact with others. And here's something that you don't get to do. You don't get to decide who can be a part of the root or which part is more important. The point is that you, we are all tied to the same thing now in Jesus. So whether old or new, the important thing is what? Jesus. And listen to this. God, if someone who has rejected God, again, chooses to come back and wants to be part of the root again, they can. You know why? Because God is able. He is capable of that. And no one has gone too far. Now, why does all this matter? Well, we get to learn a lesson about ourselves and how we see things without being the object of the lesson, which is often a good way to do this. And passages like these are a warning to us. They warn us that we tend to make the story we are a part of our story. And listen, I don't want you to misunderstand me. We need to struggle and wrestle in our own way with who God is. We need to involve God in all parts of our lives. We don't need to swing the pendulum out of this so far to the other side that we think God doesn't want to know us or know what we're about. That's not what Paul is saying. So don't take it that way. It's not personal. It's not personal. But we tend to put ourselves at the center of these stories. We put ourselves over others, especially non-Christians or other Christians that are different than us. And we tend to put ourselves over God by sometimes treating him in a what-have-you-done-for-me-recently sort of way. So Paul reminds the Roman church, as he reminds us, that the story is about the good that God is bringing to the world. It's not just about you. And either one of you sides, whatever side you're on, if you want to sit back and think of yourself as better than others or more favored by God than others, then you're missing the point of the story. Because it's not about who you are. It's about who God is. And it is about what God is doing in the world. It's not just about what God is doing in you or in your circle or in the people that you're comfortable with because God is not that small. So stop trying to make him that small. Don't you want a God who is bigger, who is able to say that anyone that wants to come be a part of the root can 
And it doesn't matter where they came from or how they got here. It just matters that they're here. So stop thinking about yourself and how this matters to you and rejoice in the fact that God is bringing salvation to all because our God is good and loving and kind and gracious and big. And isn't that the God we want? Let's recap. Number one, we tend to make things about ourselves. And number two, when we make things about ourselves, we miss out on all that God is doing in the world because he's doing things outside of us. Number three, we cannot be so self-involved that we get upset when God does something outside of us. Number four, the story of what God is doing through Jesus is way bigger than any one person or group of people. Number five, some will choose him and some will not, and God will not force people to choose him. But number six, no one is beyond his reach.